Well, let's return in our study of Ephesians to the fifth chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We've been studying for some four weeks now the meaning and extent of a husband's headship and what that means in response to walking with the Spirit of God as a husband and how that impacts our, our leadership and our love for the Lord in our marriages. We've been spending some time in this. I, I, I must confess, uh, let me see, I, I didn't know when we began this, it would be about 11 or 12 sermons in marriage, but I can only tell you that we're just skimming the surface of all that's here in this passage for us. This is the most comprehensive exhortation and explanation we have about marriage in the Bible. And I think it has been worth our attention to slow down and uh, use the scuba and not just the snorkel with it. So let me read that paragraph for us and I'll kind of explain where we are this morning in our study of this subject. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. I know you've heard me say it before, but officiating weddings is one of my favorite parts of being a pastor. It is the best seat in the house. The pastor literally stands a foot, 18 inches from this couple who are committing their lives together. And everyone comes to see them. And the pastor is the only one, who, only one who gets to watch their faces the whole time. It's not fair, but I love it. But beyond the proximity that the pastor has with the couple, there's another dimension of officiating weddings of which the pastor is closer than anyone else. And that is the content of what's being said, the wedding ceremony itself. In the hundreds of weddings that I've performed, each time I come to that one part of the wedding that's the charge to the couple. And I find myself actually almost having a, an out-of-body experience. By that, I mean I begin listening to myself talk to this groom, and I imagine myself as the groom I once was and the husband that I am now and listen to what I'm saying. It's always a challenge. 
Yesterday, I pulled up the wedding ceremony for my son, Luke, and his wife, Annie, just to remind myself of this charge. I want to read to you the charge I gave the groom, Luke, at their wedding. By the way, I have permission to read this since it's in every one of the weddings that I perform. It should be no surprise to anyone. But you'll hear his name and her name. This is the part of the wedding. Luke, let me exhort you and charge you specifically according to the biblical standard. You are to acquaint yourself with and devote yourself to the Bible's teaching on marriage, on headship, and the family, as well as gladly submit to God's word as you put into practice the treasures of wisdom you find there. You are to love Annie as Jesus loves his bride, the church, giving yourself up for her daily. You are to assume and accept the responsibility for the spiritual, emotional, physical, and financial condition of your household. You are to instill into your children, if God grants them to you, a passion for himself and his purposes. You are never to take away Annie's primary duties as mother and manager of the home. And you are to have eyes and devotion only for this precious gift that God gives you today in Annie. Those are, those are heavy commitments. Even reading them just now, I feel the burden with my own wife, Kim. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, these admonitions are the ways that a groom may enter marriage with a sense of duty and delight. The key phrase is by the power of the Holy Spirit. No man can use enough willpower to make these commitments come true. We can't try hard enough and be good enough and be sharp enough for these to happen. These are only accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why this whole section begins in chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with, influenced by, controlled by the Spirit. And one of the ways that we're controlled by the Spirit is wives operate in their roles with their husbands in a godly way, and husbands operate in their roles with their wives in an appropriate and mandated way as well. Well, this morning we come to week four of our study of the meaning and extent of the husband's headship. We've studied the passage itself, and we're going to kind of summarize some of the things in the passage and add a few more passages outside of that to, I think, give us a more comprehensive approach to applying these principles. This is more, this is less of a sermon and more of a, a chat that I'd like to have with every husband, maybe sitting on, on our couch in, in my house or sitting in my office around our, my, the round table that I have in there. What I want us to do, men, is to circle the wagons together and get very practical as we lean hard into our responsibilities as leaders in our marriages and our families. But becoming godly and becoming a godly husband, let me say again, is the result of walking with the Spirit. We don't do that so the Spirit joins us. We follow the Spirit of God's leading and then we become this. He does it through us. He does it in us. And becoming the kind of husband that God expects from Christian men and 
the kind of wife also that God desires from Christian women cannot be accomplished by merely trying harder. This is the consequence and the result of walking in step with, walking under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. Godly husbands are not godly husbands before they're godly men. Godly men who live their lives under the control and with the enablement of the Spirit of God, His permanent abiding presence with us. So ultimately, the practical application of this section is not so much try harder with your wife as much as it is walk closer with your Savior. Then the pursuits of walking with your wife and walking with the Savior come together in congruence in an amazing relationship with the Lord in response to an amazing relationship with our wives an amazing response to our wives in concert with an amazing relationship with our Lord. Now let me remind you just as a brief overview and outline of these, of these verses that we looked at together. There were three applications of a husband's loving leadership. This is all review. It's a love that loves like Jesus in verse 25 by obeying the command to do so, by following the example of Christ, by imitating his sacrifice. Secondly, we looked at in verses 26 and 27, it's a love that sanctifies or makes holy like Jesus as a deliberate process toward holiness, as a glorious presentation of holiness, as a practical objective of holiness in 27. And then thirdly, we looked at it's a love that treasures like Jesus in verses 28 to 30 by valuing marital oneness with our wives, we're one flesh, by emulating Christ's oneness with the church, we are members of his body. And by mastering the theology of marital oneness, he goes all the way back to Genesis and says, this is the foundation that you need to be familiar with to live rightly before the Lord as a husband. So for our study today, I've taken some of that and added some other things from the scriptures. I, I told you we were going to do this, and I, and I pulled together a little list I think will help us to be practical. And I'm going to look with you at 10 expressions of Christ-like headship and marriage. This is all application. Now, my wife reminded me that when I did this with the wives at the end of that section, I had 14. And my only response is, we can only handle 10. So we're going to go with these 10, and you can add far more as you study and as you learn. 10 expressions of Christ-like headship and marriage. A lot of this is review. Some of it is freshly minted as we put it all together. Number one, leading. Number one, the first expression of Christ-like headship, following Christ in our marriages, is to be a good leader, is leading. Paul describes this role of a husband in his description of the Husband, as with Christ, by saying the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. You see, what does that mean? It means leader, simply leader. In chapter 5, verse 23, we're told the husband, get this, is the head of the wife. It doesn't say the husband should become the head of the wife or act like the head of the wife. He is. That's who we are, men. We're the leader, whether we like it or not, whether we're good ones or bad ones or faithful or unfaithful, godly or ungodly. We are the head. Headship is leadership, and leadership is, here's your word, influence. All of leadership is really, when you boil it down, influence. Godly leading means exercising influence with another for the betterment of their spiritual health. And that's certainly 
what Paul has in mind here. The husband is the head of the wife in that he is her leader for her betterment and for her spiritual stability and for her spiritual health. Here's some ways that's worked out. Giving direction. The husband is the guide for setting the direction of his marriage and of the family. He's the guide. He sets the direction. He's not the only one who, who provides the the insights for how to live our lives before the Lord, but he's the leader and the head and the one God expects to give leadership, giving direction. Secondly, making decisions. The husband is the chief decision maker, but listen, he's not the unilateral decision maker. He doesn't make decisions by himself. He should make decisions by taking his wife's counsel into uh, uh, understanding, by by listening to his wife, especially major decisions. I've shared with you before, it's worth saying again, I believe, and my wife and I have talked about this, that I'm ultimately responsible for the decisions that are made in our family, especially the big ones. But there have been a few times, a handful, over the three decades of marriage that we've had where we disagreed. And sometimes that disagreement was a few minutes, sometimes it was a few hours, sometimes it was a few days. Occasionally it was a few weeks. And we would talk and roll this decision over in our discussions and we, we just didn't, we, we weren't congruent. We, we had no, no agreement on what should happen. And so in the end, because usually I was stubborn, Kim would say something like, well, here's the deal, Rick. God has called me to follow you in your leadership and your headship in our marriage. And so I'm going to defer to you and we're going to go with your decision on this. So God has called me to be accountable to follow you, but I want to remind you that God has called you to be accountable for this decision. Like, well, so you're just going to bring God right into this on me like, like that? I mean, just throw me to God and there you go. Almost always, Kim's downstairs in the nursery so I can say this with freedom. Almost always in those situations, I end up changing the decision to her perspective. So being the decision maker and responsible for the decision maker doesn't mean that you are a unilateral decision maker. Giving direction, making decisions, also promoting worship. We are the worship leader of our families. The importance of God to the husband is the catalyst for the theological inclination for the family. So as we go, so should our family. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that you can't have godly wives and godly kids when there's an ungodly father. I've seen that happen. But it does mean that there's a significant and a demonstrable influence that should and can take place when a husband is walking with the Lord and promoting worship. Church is important. Church attendance is important. The youth ministry, the children's ministry is important. Care groups are important. Singing is important. Let me encourage you, men, that your view of God will become your families. Your seriousness about the church will be your families. Your hermeneutic will be their hermeneutic. Your love for Scripture will be theirs. God can correct any bad example, but He can also use the example that He's calling us to be. Remember this too, good decisions made with 
good decisions that are made and alongside explained reasoning will go a long way in providing your wife and your kids trust and security. So just a little footnote to that. Can I suggest that you as a husband become a lifelong student alongside your regular Bible reading and study, you become a lifelong student of Psalms and Proverbs. Why? Because Psalms will keep you anchored in the worship of God. It's the hymn worship book of Israel. It keeps you pulled toward God, pulled toward God, pulled toward God. And Proverbs gives practical implications and applications of human relationships. Now, here's the good news. Proverbs is also full of worshiping God, and Psalms is also full of dealing with others. But those two books can become, not, uh, become an anchor, not instead of other study, but alongside other study. If you will devote yourself to those, I, I can guarantee it will help your husbanding and your fathering. So men, have we come to grips fully with our position in the family? Now here's the, here's the little known secret that will become very well known to many of you. For some of us, and I say us, including me, we have wives that are so spiritually mature and so competent that it's very easy to be lazy in our leadership and just let them do their thing. We still bear the responsibility of leadership. So let me encourage you, if you have a wife who is running with and toward Christ, run with her and try to outpace her as you can. Number two, loving. Leading is secondly, loving. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives. He doesn't say lead your wives. You are the leader. He says, lead them by loving them. There's the verb. Love your wife. Verse 23, the husband is the head. Verse 25, He's to love his wife. This means that our care for our wives, our exercise of leadership, is not ruling, domineering leadership like the people saw in the Greco-Roman culture of their day. It's love. Paul does not instruct the husbands to exercise or to wield their headship. He instructs them that they are the leader and the head, and they should love. There's the verb I read this a few weeks ago, bears reading again. Clinton Arnold writes this about this love. The form of the word, the agape word here, indicates that this kind of love should be the regular and hallmark feature of the husband's affections and behavior toward his wife. It makes no provision for the wife to earn the husband's favor. If you do this, then I'll love you. If you do that, then I'll love you. No, no, there is no earning. The command, he goes on, entails the husband's responsibility regardless of his wife's behavior, regardless of her health condition, her appearance, or any other potential deterrent. The fact that Christ loved the church, even in her most unlovely and unbecoming state, defines the love commitment that Christ expects from a Christian husband. His love should be unconditional, end quote. This love is an unceasing care and demonstrable service for his wife's total well-being. What does that look like? He says, love your wives, verse 25, just as Christ also loved the church. 
We spent a whole sermon talking about the dimensions of that, but that is unspeakably amazing. Love as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice. Care. Intimacy of knowledge. It's a love that affectionately cares for the beloved in ways that promote her best. It's thought through, intentional, deliberate. And again, we spent almost an hour on that. Number three, this might surprise you a little bit. Following. Ten expressions of Christ-like headship and marriage. Leading, loving, following. You say, following? Following who? Following what? By following, I mean that husbands are to be the examples in their families for following Christ. We do this just as Christ. We're the head just as Christ is the head. We love just as Christ loved. We follow Christ. That's an exercise, an expression of Christ-like headship and marriage. We are good and growing disciples of the Savior. Since we were to exercise leadership like Christ, our wives love our wives like Christ, it implies that we become and are growing in expertise in understanding Him and following Jesus. This means imitating His headship, reading the Gospels with regularity to see the way the Lord leads. It means submitting to God's Word. Remember the words I read in that wedding charge? You are to acquaint yourself with and devote yourself to the Bible's teaching on marriage, headship, and the family, as well as gladly submit to the Word of God as you practice the treasures of wisdom you find there. It's one thing to lead family devotions. It's something else to have your own. It's one thing to expect commitment to the Scriptures. It's another thing to demonstrate your own. Following the Lord. By the way, following the Lord sometimes and oftentimes means following the godly counsel in my life, which is best articulated from my wife. Listening to godly counsel doesn't mean you've abdicated your headship. Every good leader is a good learner and a good follower. So men, what kind of follower of the Lord are you becoming? Number four, shepherding. Leading, loving, following, shepherding. This is simple soul care. Jesus is called the great shepherd by Peter. He shepherds his sheep. I am the good shepherd, he told his disciples. He cares for his sheep. He cares for believers. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. He promised to be with us always, even to the end. He promised to give us what we need for the health and growth of our souls. There's our pattern. There's our example, men. Look back to Paul's shepherding, excuse me, Paul's understanding of Jesus' shepherding in 527. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He cares for his church by seeing to it that she's pursuing and understands how to pursue holiness, being above reproach. So should a husband look at his leadership of his wife in the same way. This means that shepherding our wives involves a demonstrable care, demonstrable attention to her spiritual health and her growth. We care about it. We know about it. We do something about it. You know where she is spiritually and you're trying to help her go to the next level. 
Go back one verse in verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What place does scripture play in your marriage? We'll ask this again in a few weeks. What place does it play and hold in your parenting? Do you read it with your wife? Do you study it with your wife? Do you talk about it with your wife? As important as that is, let me go one step further. Do you, are you careful to be sure that she has the time she needs in the word? It's more than just having family devotions. It's helping her have her own. Let me ask it this way. Do you make sure that your wife has enough time in her daily schedule for personal Bible study and prayer? which might mean you giving her some relief with the kids, getting up earlier, rearranging your schedule so that she has time to be alone with her Lord. One, one of the things in this, I don't get the credit for this. This was suggested to me by a friend. But when the boys were younger, we had Donut Saturday. And what would happen is on Saturday mornings when the boys were in elementary school especially, I would take them down to uh, S&S Donuts just down the hill from where we lived, and they could, they could pick out any donut they wanted. In fact, they could get as many donuts as they wanted, but here was the catch. You had to eat what you ordered. So uh, they understood pretty soon to order one thing at a time because I can remember one or once or twice when they ordered half a dozen donuts, and Dad made them eat them all and then give them with a sugar rush back to Mom. It was pretty good. But what we did during that time, that was a special time that I had with my boys, but that also gave Kim two or three hours that she would go to uh, the bookstore that went out of uh, Barnes & Noble. Is that the one that went out? Whatever bookstore went out of business. She would go there and she'd spend a few hours studying, reading, uh, just kind of resetting, planning her week. And it meant a lot to her that, that I gave her some relief. You know what it also did? By the end of those those three hours or so, when we came back together, I said, honey, thank you for all you do. <laughs> it's important to make sure that she's caring for her. By the way, men, oh, gentlemen, husbands, remember 1 Corinthians 14, 35, talking about the wives, it says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. That doesn't mean that your wife can't ask the pastor or the elder or any Sunday school leader about help with something, but it means that the first line of questioning goes to you. It's okay, men, to say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll find out. That's okay. But do you have the kind of relationship where your wife when she has a Bible question, a theology question, a practical question, she comes to you. It's designed to be that way in a marriage because your headship is giving that kind of leadership. Are you becoming the resident expert in your home for theology and scriptural understanding? Are you your home's resident theologian and Bible answer man? You should be, and you should be getting better. Listen, I'm a pastor. I, I have some, some degrees in theology. I cannot tell you how many times my sons ask me a question and I go, I don't know. Ask your mom. 
We're growing and learning. So we're shepherding. Number five, providing. Now, these next two are just a recap of what we looked at last week, so I'll be quick on them. Verse 25 says, Every man nourishes and cherishes his, his own body, and then he makes a parallel, just as Christ also does the church. So there's our example. As we nourish and cherish, Christ nourishes and cherishes, and we should nourish and cherish our wives in this way. Nourish. It speaks of providing for. Give what is needed. First of all, this is, pri- this is financial provision. We take care of our homes. If, if we're not making enough money, we don't tell her, go get another job and go get a better job. We get an extra job. We are responsible to put food on the table, to give a place to live, making the provisions of this world. Listen, emotional security of your wife is built so much on her trust of you to provide for her and to provide for the family. It doesn't mean that your wife never works or that your kids don't work, but it does mean that we as husbands take the primary responsibility seriously that we are to be the providers for our families and our homes. The idea is that the husband does what it takes to shelter and feed his wife and kids. That's in that word, nourish. Secondly, cherish in the word, which is number six, treasuring. Ten expressions of Christ-like headship and marriage, leading, loving, following, shepherding, providing. Six, treasuring. It's that word, cherish. It means to impart warmth, to comfort, to tenderly care for. It's, it's used often or for how a mother cares for an infant who's nursing. It's a precious, tender moment. We are to have precious, tender care, to cherish, to treasure our wives. Does your wife know that she is the object of your affections? Is she the object of your treasuring? Proverbs 31, 28, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Man, have you looked at your wife recently ever and said, out of the 3 billion or so females on this planet, if I had it to do over again, I would choose you. Do you treasure her? This is more than feelings, but it includes feelings. We don't love merely out of duty. We love out of our affections. We treasure them. We looked at that last week. Number seven, understanding. I'm going to go fast. Understanding, 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Show her, the honor as, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. If you move backwards in that verse, God threatens not to hear or respond to our prayers if we're not living with our wives in an understanding way. That's heavy. Are you the living expert on this planet about your wife? Do you know her wants, her needs, her desires, her aversions? 
what makes her happy and what makes her sad. Will you listen to her? Will you know her better? Do you care for what she thinks and how she feels? Do you ever ask, how does that make you feel? What do you think about that? And then listen before we give a dissertation on what we think and how we feel. You understand her. But that's paired with this next expression, which is empathizing. This is the same thing, but more focused and more isolated, empathizing. Remember that the basis of a husband's leadership is for his wife's, the basis for a husband's leadership of his wife is Christ's leadership of us. And the writer to the Hebrews gives us an amazing insight into his leadership. Jesus understands us and empathizes with us. He empathizes with our weaknesses. He's experienced our temptations. He's experienced our vulnerabilities. He knows what it's like to be a man because he is forever the God-man. This leadership is slightly nuanced and distinct from understanding. And I think you understand that by hearing what the writer of the Hebrews said in chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things, Jesus so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In other words, he can look at us and say, I empathize with your weakness because I was tempted in the same way. If we're to follow Christ's example in empathizing, do we identify with our wife's vulnerabilities and weaknesses? Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot, here's another word, sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things yet as we are yet without sin. So following Christ's example, every godly husband should take the effort, make the effort and take the time to understand his wife's weaknesses and vulnerabilities, especially in her role to be submissive to, are you ready for this? Us. I mean, I, my precious wife is called to be submissive, which is hard enough. But then when you say submissive to me, that turns the amplifier up. Am I sympathetic to that? Am I aware that God has called her to, to follow me and aware that I have a mirror and know who lives in that mirror? Number nine, listening. This is an expression of Christ-like headship based on the wonderful reality of prayer. <laughs> Jesus is always available to hear us. He's always interested in what we want to talk to him about. He cares about what we care about. He has never said, got to run. Got to go to another meeting. Can we talk about this later? He listens to us for as long as we want to talk about everything and anything we want to talk about. Sure, there are times that we can't talk as long as we want to. But do you take the time, men, Husbands, do you take the time to really listen to your wife? 
Ask her questions and let her fully answer without cutting her off, without telling her what you think and what you feel. Do you listen? Will you listen? I think it's fair to say that our wives want to hear us, but they also want to be heard. Will you listen to her? Will you ask her to unbear her heart, to bear her heart rather with you? Listening. And number 10, which might seem a little odd, boasting. Bragging. You say, what? Is that pride? No, 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 no. Back to Proverbs 31. Her children, the godly woman, rise up and bless her. Aaron talked about this earlier in our worship, making much of her. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but listen to this pronoun, but you excel them all. He's talking to her. He boasts about her, and he boasts about her, get this, to her. Her children will rise up and bless her. He speaks to others about her positively, and he speaks to her positively about her. I think the best way that children learn how to rise up and praise their mom is by observing how their dad praises their mom. Are you verbally encouraging to your wife? Are you verbally encouraging about your wife? Do you praise her to others and do you praise her to yourself? Are you ever around a water cooler and guys are going off negatively on their wife and you say, not mine, not mine? Do you commend her for any and all biblical character traits that you see growing in her? Reverence, respect, gentle and quiet spirit, being self-controlled, having discretion, having love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit, hard work, modesty. My wife and I were out not long ago, and uh, there was a woman dressed very immodestly. And it was just such a blessing to look at my wife and say, honey, thank you. Thank you for being modest. Thank you for never embarrassing yourself or me or your children. But you're modest. Do you praise your wife? Proverbs 31 says, you excel them all. Do you tell her the treasure that she is that God gave to you? John Piper says this, when a man senses a primary God-given responsibility for the spiritual life of the family, gathering for family devotions, taking them to church, calling for prayer at meals, when he senses a primary God-given responsibility for the discipline and education of the children, the stewardship of money, the provision of food, the safety of home, the healing of discord, that special sense of responsibility is not authoritarian or autocratic or domineering or bossy 
or oppressive or abusive. It is simple, simply servant leadership. Then he says this, I have never met a wife who is sorry she is married to a man like that. Because when God designs a thing like marriage, he designs it for his glory and for our good. That's a heavy lift, men, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, do any of us look at that list and go home and dislocate our soul, shoulders, patting ourselves on the back for how good we're doing? But thank God for grace. Thank God for forgiveness. Thank God for enabling presence and new mornings and fresh mercies every day. I told Kim all week, I'm studying this. And I said, I just want you to know, I'm going to tell a bunch of men to do stuff I don't do very well. So I hope that you can join me in excelling better and more. Wives, thanks for your patience with us. We want to be patient with each other as husbands and wives. Because the gospel is proclaimed in how we relate to one another. It's a big deal. Let's not be lazy. Let's be deliberate and think more carefully and clearly and responsibly to what God calls us to be and do as godly men and women. Father, enable us in ways that we can't ourselves to be husbands and wives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.